Okay, hi Peter, welcome back to the, the Great Writers Inspire project. Thank you for talking to us again. Today we're going to talk about D.H. Lawrence, who uh, is, is already on the Great Writers Inspire project uh, in the modernism section. And Lawrence is, is most frequently considered as a modernist writer within mm -hmm. modernist modules at universities and things like that. Today we're going to talk about how we can consider Lawrence as a, a post-colonial author, or uh, consider Lawrence through a, a post-colonial lens at least. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you have a, a few ways in, in which you want to think about this. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think probably one of the best ways of framing all this is it can also be framed in terms of a larger context and in terms of what, uh, what some great criticism can do, what a, what a great critical reading of some, somebody can do. And... Um, I suppose in terms of thinking about Lawrence in the context of some or other notion of the post-colonial, uh, which is, we'll get onto in a moment, I suppose, is, is a somewhat surprising idea. Um, the best place to look, I think, is probably um, the uh, Indian novelist and, uh, and in fact, singer Amit Chowdhury, uh, who published a critical study of Lawrence in 2003 called D. H. Lawrence and Difference, Postcoloniality and the Poetry of the Present. Um, this was an, in some ways a, you know, a, a very surprising book coming from a very surprising angle, suddenly giving us a new, a new Lawrence. I mean, uh, Lawrence in many ways um, has uh, become, uh, ever since the 1960s and almost not not only unread but almost unreadable for a lot of people. I mean, he he was uh, um, uh, given a, se a serious uh, drubbing by by certain forms of, f of of feminist criticism, but actually, in a way, the the history of Lawrence, the reception of Lawrence has always been problematic from yeah. one p perspective or another. You know, he he was absolutely. Uh, um, uh, you know, castigated by a figure like uh, T.S. Eliot in, 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 in the 1930s. In, in, and Lawrence is in many ways the kind of the figure who's at the heart of after strange gods, a kind of uh, Eliot's most virulent assault on what he took as the, the worst aspects of modernity, which, which he saw Lawrence as embodying. And, so, and then, of course, he was banned. And th 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 there's a long, you know, uh, Lawrence has always been an awkward figure. But what, what you can find is that in the history of criticism, um, you know, the, probably the most famous recuperation of Lawrence was, was first of all, F.R. Leavis's book on Lawrence. In, it came out in the, in the mid-1950s, and that, that gave, another it gave a, a version of Lawrence that was certainly anti-T.S. Eliot and what, what Leavis took to be the English critical establishment of, of the 1940s and 50s. Um, and then you get a, a book like, like Amit Chowdhury is coming along. And... Um, I think one, there, there are many aspects, as you, you could see from the title, the book's mainly about the poetry, but there's a, there's a, a deeper aspect of, the, of his analysis which um, really sets up Lawrence as a, a critic of Western ways of thinking. I mean, uh, un understood in, in, in that sort of slightly knowingly generalized sense of what is a Western way of thinking or European traditions of thought. Chowdhury picks up on the fact that that there's a there's a tradition in in certainly in European and maybe uh, Anglo-American aesthetics, for instance, where the language of aesthetics is all based on notions of sight. The the, the, the visual there's a kind of visual bias. Mm -hmm. So the metaphors in which you talk about how do you look at a painting, 
uh, how, how do you see certain things, um, everything, the point of view in a, in a work. Uh, you know, a lot of this has to do with vision. It, it, it privileges uh, vision. And um, that, that's often at the expense of other senses and other ways of construing aesthetic response. And he, sa he has this, this really interesting set of uh, claims. This is on page 104 of, of, his, uh, of D. H. Lawrence Indifference. And he says, uh, it says here, to make sight and hearing as well, the founding tropes for aesthetic response, would have a definite consequences for language and thought, he says. Um, for instance, seeing does not appropriate the object seen, which remains outside, distanced, necessarily idealized. There is, if you like, in just in the whole language of seeing, a kind of a, a distancing. Whereas, in contrast, the language of touch or taste, actually tasting food, say, um, that distance is broken. That distance is not possible. It's, 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 uh, there's contact. Um, and so Chowdhury is making the claim that, that this is an aspect of, of Western, if it, Western aesthetics uh, that Lawrence is very criti critical of. And you get the kind of claims that Lawrence makes in, in, in Lady Chatley's Lover, for instance, where he talks about the democracy of touch. The whole notion of touch is vital, vital to the way Lawrence thinks. And then the, the interesting thing is also that Chowdhury, coming from a perspective with a knowledge of, uh, of Indian, in particular, um, uh, aesthetic traditions, says that, you know, c not only uh, says that there's this aspect of Western, the Western tradition, but in the Indian tradition is much closer to what Lawrence is doing. So he says here, for instance, um, it's worth noting that in Indian art, whether in reference to poetry, painting, or music, the operative word is rasa, or juice, and the person who responds to a work of art would inevitably taste its juice or flavor. Taste in this context has less relation to the upper-class British usage of the word than to appetite here. He, so here, then, is the theory of aesthetic that admits desire. That's the other thing, is he wants to say that desire is central to notions of touch and taste, which is, in a sense, not um, central to the way in which Western aesthetic sets up vision. Um, and, of course, that centrality of desire is, as everybody knows about Lawrence, that's the one thing that Lawrence writes a lot about, is, is desire. So in, in Chowdhury, you get, you get suddenly this, this notion that Lawrence is this somehow anti-Western figure. And on the face of it, this is a completely implausible idea. <laughs> um, you know, if you, if you look at the criticism of Lawrence and if you see what people have quoted and the ways in which, say, Lawrence has been situated, then then you get a very different sense of what's Lawrence's relationship to Western modes of thought, especially Western modes of thought prevalent in the 1920s, say, when, when Lawrence is writing. And one of the favoured uh, quotations which, which makes us wary of Lawrence and what Lawrence represents and what he carries, uh, carries on is this extraordinary set of claims uh, from uh, an essay, actually. So this is Lawrence speaking effectively in his own voice as an essayist from, from around 1925 called Reflections on the Death of a Porcupine, um, which, uh, uh, which has the, the following statements. He says here, life is more vivid in the dandelion than in the green fern. This is a, this is a, a prose essay, but it's at this point sounds like 
free verse almost. Life is more vivid in a snake than in a butterfly, says Lawrence. Life is more vivid in a wren than in an alligator. Life is more vivid in a cat than in an ostrich. And then we get to the key quotations. This is Lawrence in his Mexican phase. He's living in Mexico at this time. Life is more vivid in the Mexican who drives the wagon than in the two horses in the wagon. And then the crucial bit, which people would want to quote, life is more vivid in me than in the Mexican who drives the wagon for me. Not difficult to see this as somehow reflecting Lawrence's deep embeddedness in a highly racialized mm -hmm. understanding of the world. You can also pick up a kind of a version of Darwinian thinking about, about the hierarchy of, yeah. of, of species and animals. And, and actually, Lawrence, in many ways, makes that quite explicit. A little bit later on, he says, but let us insist and insist again, just after this passage I've just read, we are talking now of existence of species. When we say, you know, there's this hierarchical vision, we're talking of species, of types, of races, of nations, not of single individuals, nor of beings. Okay. So that, there it looks like Lawrence is, again, and I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's certainly impossible to extricate him from being, at that point, deeply embedded in a certain racialized view of the world, uh, one informed by... In fact, a, a fairly sort of populist uh, uh, reading of, um, of Darwin. And of course, when you put this in the context of kind of what was going on in Europe at the time uh, with the Nazis, etc., etc., this is, this is deeply repellent thinking. Um, even, and so, you know, the idea there that Chowdhury is somehow try, trying to set up uh, uh, Lawrence is somehow critical of the West or anti the West, is, it looks implausible. But uh, you know, in, in Chowdhury's defense, I think it's also important just to look at, even in that essay, even in the uh, reflections on the death of a porcupine, you suddenly get this, this other view um, contrast. And in fact, what that essay is doing is it's pitting against, it's absolutely accepting and in a sense endorsing that hierarchical, racialized, struggle-based uh, um, conception of, of, of uh, uh, the relationship between species, races, nations, and so on. But it's setting that up in contrast to a completely different view, and actually saying that there are these two irreconcilable views. Uh, and the other view is where you see a, a, a any of those creatures that he names, you know, whether it's the butterfly himself, the Mexican, a fern, whatever he was talking about, not in some sort of drama of conflict and conquest, which he says is, is inescapable, uh, but in, its, in and of itself. And so just after the bit that I've read again, he says this, any creature, any creature that attains to its own fullness of being, its own living self, becomes unique, a non-pareil. It has its place in the, what he now calls the fourth dimension. Uh, and, and there it is perfect and it is beyond comparison. So there, even then, he's contrasting this kind of hierarchical view with a view in which suddenly things are themselves and fullest in, in, in the fullness of themselves. Uh, they, they are incomparable. They, they stand apart from everything. Uh, there's a kind of a singularity about all these things. And, and then interestingly, again, because of the, the, um, the issue about uh, you know, where, does, where does Lawrence stand on all these things, uh, it's interesting that, again, just after the bit that I've read, he, he says, 
the best way to understand the relationship between things, especially understood now in their singularity, not in the, the drama of conflict and hierarchy, the best way, he then says, is a pure relationship. The best way is a pure relationship which includes the being on each side and which allows the transfer to take place in a living flow, enhancing the life of both beings. That's now suddenly there's this contrasted to this hierarchical, mm. what would for us now be a deeply rebarbative, you know, uh, offensive way of thinking, uh, is, is contrasted with a completely non-hierarchical view uh, and, uh, of uh, relationship based on reciprocity, uh, understanding things in a radically different sort of way. But still, I mean, when we, you know, it, it's difficult not to read this without any kind of sense of ambivalence, I think. Yeah. So it's interesting that um, the, uh, uh, criticism has tended to use this essay to justify, or well, to make claims uh, for uh, Lawrence's entanglement within the, uh, the, ra the racist thinking of the time, rather yeah. than to uh, try and explore this perhaps more complex deeper um, uh, understanding that almost sort of transcends the hierarchies that are put in place in the first part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, in a sense, some aspects of Chaudhry's argument might, might uh, underplay the extent to which Lawrence yeah. remains embedded in that. But what he's, what he's, and this is what a great critical intervention can do, what, he, what, he's, what he's, his comments make open up for us on this issue of of Lawrence and, and Western ways of thinking about taste, for instance, yeah. is that actually there is this, there's this other dimension. There's this uh, dimension to him which, you know, even in this essay that I'm quoting, I think there is a, um, uh, because of Lawrence's insisting on the fact that these two views of the world are, are radically at odds with each other and opposed to each other. And in fact, in the bit that I'm reading there, where I, where I say, you know, the best way is a pure relationship, mm -hmm. that, that sense, um, there's a sense in which he, he is actually in his own voice, yeah. allying himself with a kind of an anti-racist mm -hmm. uh, or anti-racialized view. But, the, but in fact, the essay is endorsing both positions yeah. uh, with, a, with, a, with a preference leaning to one side. And I think that kind of rereading, going back and looking at an author again, is what a, is what a great critic can do. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I mean, I, I think the other context in which I would say that this also becomes uh, worth revisiting, and again, going back to what, what what Chowdhury's work does is, is make you want to revisit you know, a lot of other stories as well. And, and the, one, the one we thought we might mention is the, the short story, again, written in 1924, called The Woman Who Rode Away, uh, which, which is another important story. It's one of those stories, again, from the sort of Mexican uh, stay period of, of, of Lawrence's later life, um, where one of the things that he's doing in this short story is transposing what is often uh, in the stories set in, in, in England um, uh, a class-based story uh, where for, for Lawrence there's always a, a, a generally deformed, normally sexually deformed middle-class figure who has an awkward relationship, normally male, to his body. And this, this is contrasted with uh, um, one or another uh, uh, working class figure who's not, um, and and the kind of uh, Chatterley Miller's relationship is the, is the kind of classic one that everybody th thinks about. That and what's interesting, what happens in the woman who rode away? Uh, it's set in Mexico, um, and and the contrast here is not between um, 
a, not an English class issue, but it's a uh, uh, two representatives of, of an Anglo-European culture. One is um, uh, the, the, ma the, 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 the white figure, the male figure in the story is, is um, a Dutch miner in um, uh, Mexico called Lederman, and his wife is actually Californian. Um, they live. They live in uh, in Mexico. There's this, you know. Uh, he's making his money out of out of mining. Um, and again, one of the things that's interesting. This, if you read this story, so the, the story just very broad, very briefly in terms of what it narrates. I mean, it's just worth reading very carefully. But what it narrates is a story of uh, frustration, uh, uh, ennui on the part of Mrs. Lederman. The, the, the woman um, has had enough of her sequestered, boring life on the farm, mm -hmm. uh, on the, on the, in the kind of farmhouse that they, that they, uh, they live in, um, and decides to break away and ride off into the mountains uh, to meet up with uh, the Chilchui Indians, who, who are a, a, a um, uh, a, a group of uh, uh, Mexican Indians linked back to the Aztec traditions, and she wants to encounter these these um, uh, uh, authentic yeah. Mexican figures in that sense. And she has all, all those views. But again, you know, when we go on to you know this issue of how do we how do we uh, through something like Chowdhury's rereading of, of of Lawrence, how do we situate Lawrence in relation to thinking about the relationship between cultures and communities in, in uh, the context of, of European thought in the 1920s. Where, you know, where, where do we place Lawrence? How do we, how do we situate him? It's a great story to look at as well because in the first place, um, it's very, very explicitly uh, made clear that first of all, Mr. Lederman is a repellent character. Mm. So the, the initially the story is told a straightforward third person narrative point of view. We get this account. Mr. Lederman is described as a squeamish waif of an idealist and really hated the physical side of life. So he's one of these classic kind of middle-class male figures who can't deal with their bodies and want to, want to always displace uh, life away from desire and the body, normally into money or making things. And he says here, so he loved work, 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 and making things. His marriage, his children, was something that he was making, part of his business, with a sentimental income this time. So you can only understand things in terms of the cash nexus. Everything is in that way, and, and he's, he's, he's got this deformed relationship to sexuality and his, uh, uh, and his own body. Um, he then also imprisons his wife uh, in, this, in this life uh, that they've, they've got on the in, on, on the in Mexico. Um, and also, importantly, this figure, Lederman, a repellent figure in the whole kind of panoply of, uh, of Lawrence's deformed characters, is also deeply and thoroughly and explicitly racist. Mm. So this is how he describes the Chilchui Indians, for instance. This is the Mr. Mr. Lederman, the, the Dutch miner. He says, savages are savages, and all savages behave more or less alike. Rather low down and dirty, unsanitary, with few cunning tricks, and struggling to get enough to eat. Okay. That's his characterization of indigenous Mexicans, as it were. Classic articulation of a, of a racist view. The, the really interesting thing is then Mrs. Lederman is given the obverse of that. 
So instead of this racist view of, of uh, the Mexicans, you get an idealized, romanticized, neo-primitivist view. And so this is what she says, the narrator tells us. She, and this is it, was overcome by a foolish romanticism. Foolish romanticism. More unreal than a girl's, we're told. She felt it was her destiny to wander into the secret haunts of these timeless, mysterious, marvelous Indians of the mountains. Okay. I don't think that difficult to detect a certain degree of narrative irony. Um, I, I won't go into the story too much uh, because it's, it, it is worth reading as it, as it unfolds. Uh, but what, what, what happens, and, and this is why some, some critics uh, can, can sometimes, uh, for instance, I think it was Terry Eagleton, uh, said, described this story as, as reveling in, a sadist, in the sadistic mutilation of a woman by non-Westerners. I think that was the, the, the statement that he made about it. Um, and it's, it's, it's this, um, what, what happens is she, go, she, wanders, she, she rides off into the, into the sunset to join the Chilchui Indians, and she becomes... Uh, a, a sacrificial victim uh, to a rite that the Chilchui Indians are, are performing. Mm -hmm. And one of the, again, the issue is where, where we placed as readers in this, and, and in all of this, again, when you're reading literary works, you, know, you, you, can't, you can't separate yourself from how it's all being related to you, mm -hmm. not, not just what's being said, but how's it being said. And the, I think the really interesting thing about this, as we, as we move on, we could come down to the view, you know, is this, you know, as Eagleton sort of says, some sort of uh, reveling in some sort of primitivist barbarism? Uh, or is this, a sense, an expression of uh, a critique of this woman's naivety and about how she just cannot understand uh, how she suddenly becomes part of the Chilchui Indians' narrative yeah. of their own experience, and in fact, maybe part of a ritual that is actually intended to cleanse exactly European culture and everything just, you know, uh, um, that's, that's deforming the Mexican landscape with its minds and so on and get, push them out. So is this, a, is this an act of savagery, this mutilation of her and the sacrifice of her, uh, or is it, is it some sort of act of anti-colonial self-assertion? Where, where are we placed? And I think the really interesting technical point here, again, we've seen that Lawrence has got, on the one hand, a clear castigated racist figure, on the other hand, a clear, naive, romantic figure in the figure of the woman. And what he does technically, as we re read through the stories, he starts to rely more and more on what's technically called restricted third-person narration, where we only get the perspective of the woman. We actually never get presented. We, n we as readers never know what is going on. How, how do the Chilchui Indians themselves see this whole episode? We never know that. We only see her perspective, even though she dies in the end. And this is, this is how the kind of thing that you get. This is how the end, towards the end, you know, as she's being led up for sacrifice, how things are described. So again, we're in the, we notice that we're in the third person mode of narration. So the old chief or medicine man whatever he was. So in a sense, in a, in a normal idea of a third-person narration, they, they, a third-person narrator would know everything and not say whatever he was, is the old chief or medicine man, whatever he was, had a deeply wrinkled and lined face of dark bronze. He looked into the eyes of the white woman with a long, piercing look, seeking she knew not what. 
So you can see there that the perspective that we're getting is entirely from her. And we never know what is he seeking. We don't see it from his perspective. We only see it from hers. Um, she summoned up all the strength to meet his eyes and keep on her guard, but it was no good. He never even perceived her resistance or her challenge, but looked past them both into, and again we get it, she knew not what. Again, you know, I think there's ways in which you can say, oh, this is just a sort of a, a cop-out on the part of the author, or, you know, what are, what are we to make of this? But I think it's, again, an important aspect of how, how Lawrence writes. You know, he was the person who was famous for saying, you know, trust the teller, don't trust the tale. Um, don't, don't, don't try to think this is straightforwardly the author's views or something like that. But I think the key thing is that on the, on the, on the main question, you know, what is, you know, is this story... Uh, you know, reveling in savagery, or is it doing something else? You know, it, what, what, what is it that, that judgment about what's going on there is forced onto us as readers? I think that the, the story deliberately wants to, through its own technical devices, formal devices, wants to avoid making that judgment because, in a sense, that's part of its provocation yeah. to its implied readership. You know, what are you going to make of this?